Just a quick warning, this podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Today we have an extraordinary guest with us, Brian Bishop. Welcome to The Sticker. Thank you so much for having me, man. It's awesome. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's an honor and a privilege to be here, and I'm excited to be here in Australia. And I'll be honest, I've been looking for a, someone like a return serviceman or special yeah. forces, and that I've been looking for a while, and your partner, Kate McLaren, boxer Kate McLaren, got in contact and went, bang, here we go. Yeah. Tell us a bit about your story. Where did it start? Where did you grow up? What were your dreams and aspirations as a young fellow? Okay, so I'm obviously from the States, and I grew up in a, a little, like, in the Mountain States region in a place called Wyoming. I'll back up. I was born in Los Angeles, and my mom, who was from Colorado, small town, small ranch town, Colorado, she realized she didn't want to raise kids in L.A. at the time. I was actually born in, in a part of South Central L.A., so, that's, that's pretty rough, huh? Yeah, it's very rough. She realized she didn't want to raise kids in California, and so... She, at the time, her and my dad were not getting along, and then nine months after I was born, and then we moved to Wyoming where he had a job on the, he was working the oil fields in Wyoming, doing oil rough, roughneck stuff on the rigs and doing diesel repair on the diesel generators on the rigs. And so we moved to Wyoming and I grew up in Wyoming. And then When you talk about like, when you say, did you have a ranch, a farm, or was it that sort of town? Yeah, we had a, it's one of the larger towns in Wyoming. Wyoming's very rural. Mm. We're the least populated state in the United States, and it's all very mountainous, very cold. Our winters are extremely brutal. We get 800 inches of snow in Wyoming. We're in the negatives. I'm not sure. And is it cattle country? Yeah, Yeah. we have a lot of cattle there, a lot of cattle ranches. We have some of the largest ranches in the United States there. So I grew up there. We had a small little tiny ranch. I think it was like seven, maybe 10 acres. And we had every animal that you could possibly imagine. And as part of my duties and responsibilities to take care of the animals when I was a kid, which I, I grew to hate. Getting up every morning at 4.30 a.m., going out, chopping the ice off the water trough so the animals could have water and throwing grain and throwing alfalfa to all of the animals. Was Because we had horses, we had pigs, we had steers, we had ducks and chicken and mm. turkeys and lambs and you name it. Yeah. It was old McDonald had a farm for real. <laughs> That's how I grew up. And then uh, in high school, um, I moved around a lot. My parents got divorced. My mom got remarried to a guy that hadn't, we ended up moving to the ranch with him, my stepdad. And yeah, I just, because I'd moved schools so many times, I didn't really fit in with a lot of people. I went to nine different schools growing up. So it was a little tough for me to fit in. Did you face any bullying or anything like that sort of stuff? Yeah, on occasion, people didn't really mess with me too much because when I was a kid, I learned about bullying really early on, and it was when I was in grade school. I, unfortunately, my mom and dad, when they got divorced, my father was massively physically abusive, and not in a sexual way, but just had no problems going on a good piss-up and putting the fist to you if he felt like it. So mm. we got tuned up on a regular basis, all three of us, my mm. younger brother and my mom. I, was, I think it caused me to be really introverted at first, mm. and then when I was in grade school, I think I was like in fourth grade eight or nine, maybe 10 years old, I kept getting bullied by these three groups or these three three kids are all older. They would push me around. They'd beat me up, take my, take my lunch money, which at the time we weren't doing, doing well. We're definitely poverty level and just barely was everything my parents could do to scrape up just a couple bucks for me to eat or send me to school or something every day. After going hungry and getting knocked around pretty good a few times, I just, one day they all ganged up on me and put me against the fence. And I just, there was this one and he was the smaller of the three. Mm -hmm. 
and he was the ringleader of them. And he, his name was Jeremy. He pushed, he was pushing me up against the fence and he slapped me. And it just did something in my mind. I had maybe, that was like the first time I ever had a flashback about mm. getting abused at home. And it just snapped something inside of me. And I just went, I turned into a wild animal and I grabbed this kid and I threw him on the ground and I beat him so bad. He, they, they ended up having, I knocked out one of his teeth, split his lip, busted up his nose and his eyebrow. Like he was, he was bleeding pretty good. And cause I just wouldn't stop hitting him. And it took two of the adult playground teachers, like the playground instructors to pull me off of him. Did you feel empowered? Did you feel like you were taking something back? Not right away. No. Like I just, I went, I just was in a rageful state. As soon as that happened, uh, they basically, you know, it took me a minute to process it. And as soon as I did that, like word spread around the campfire at school real quick. They were like, oh, wow, like that kid just went crazy. Like, because I don't think they'd ever seen a kid like get beat as bad as I beat mm -hmm. that kid up. And so after that, no one really messed with me. And mm -hmm. then, and then I ended up moving schools and then I had to prove myself all over again and was getting in fights pretty regularly at the new school that I went to. And then, yeah, and then as time went on in high school, myself and my younger brother both had a reputation for like, we, it, you know, we didn't, I, I have a very firm rule of don't start none, there won't be none. Yeah. But if you try and bully me or I see somebody getting bullied, I don't tolerate it. And so no. people, like I developed a reputation at one point at school, like just don't, I wasn't the biggest guy in the room, but I was the guy that had no problem get thrown down if, yeah. if we had to. And that's just, and then I grew up and quickly realized I wasn't a great study at school. I was super bored with it. Academics just weren't doing it for me. And I barely squeaked by, got my, graduated, got my high school diploma. I did have to go to one summer of summer school in between my junior and senior year, my 11th and 12th grade year, because I cut so much class. Like, I think I had, I don't know, like 116 absences in, <laughs> in one school year and totally shit the bed on all my grades. If I was going to graduate on time, I did have to go to summer school, which I did and completed that successfully. And then I did manage to graduate. And so during the graduation time frame, like I just. Did, did the military, as a young fellow, being yeah. in the military, was it a goal of yours? There was a seven who appealed to you or? Yeah. So uh, what happened was the, in between my junior and senior year, I had also gotten really good at snowboarding and I had an opportunity to go to some camps. I got invited by a company, a snowboard company, a snowboard manufacturer. Snowboarding was just coming into being a thing back in that time frame. I'm going to date myself a bit because I graduated in 95. So I won a local competition on our local mountain for freestyle snowboarding. And these guys noticed me and they asked me, they're like, hey, if you want a slot on our amateur team, we'll give you one, but you have to go to the Mount Hood training camp. And then you have to go up to Valdez and go to the Valdez, Alaska training camp this summer. And if you complete those two camps and then you come back and you podium in at least three competitions over the course of next winter, you can have a slot on our amateur team. And then if you continue to do good things on the amateur team, then you can, you have a chance in, to move up to, a, to being on a pro staff. Mid nineties, my parents were not very strapped for money and the camps were going to cost $2,000 each for me to go to. None of my family supported it because at the time they, they were very conservative people, very country. It was a progressive type sport of the time. It was, yeah. Yeah. Now they're, now the X Games. It turned into an Olympic sport in 1998. So three years after I graduated, it turned mm -hmm. into an Olympic sport. But at the time, nobody, nobody really liked it. And it was a lot of crossover from skateboarding. A combination between skiing and skateboarding, yeah. is it really? Yeah. A bit of surfing. Yep. But we were all thugs. We were kids that were like getting in trouble and nicking cars and selling drugs and spraying graffiti on things and tagging things up. And so that, that reputation from skateboarding carried into snowboarding originally and my parents just vehemently did not support it. Mm -hmm. So 
I got put in a situation where like that at the time that was my dream and I couldn't do it. And I remember being really depressed about it. And then one of my friends, he had a book about Navy SEALs and he brought me a book and he gave it to me. And I loved reading when I was a kid. I'll still suck up books pretty regularly and read this book. And it just like, was a story about SEALs and how they were formed and their history through Vietnam and all the, all their training pipeline. And it just looks romantic. Hey. Yeah, when I took into consideration, well, am I going to go sit in a classroom in college? And I hate school. Like, why would I go put myself through that of sitting in classrooms for another four years? I just knew I wouldn't make it. I would have partied my way out of school or I would have quit and dropped because I have no interest in that stuff. When I was presented with, an, with a, the choice of go sit in a classroom at uni for another four years or go join the military and jump out of planes and blow things up and travel all over the world and do cool, adventurous things. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I think there's something attractive about the having that type of lifestyle. So I I went to the does, mate. That's pretty appealing. That's my sort of, the classroom stuff's never been my stuff, but what you're talking about, I'm on your level there. Yeah. That's me. Yeah. I, I relate to that. That's manly. Yeah, I just couldn't I didn't see myself being a college going to college. I ended up going to uni later on in my life, but the at that point in time I was not focused on any of that join the military and how did that start did you, was it a sign-up process was it a, was there a bit of a process to signing up in the military or was it just bang you apply a couple of weeks later you're in yeah we so the recruiters will heavily campaign in the high schools with students that are seniors in high school and they're getting ready to graduate and they'll go find out who they'll go get the lists from the schools of who all the graduating seniors are and then or junior can put you in what's called the delayed entry program if you're a junior that's what I got put in was a delayed entry program. And originally, I signed up for the Navy because I wanted to be a SEAL. And what happened was they lost my paperwork, and there was some kind of administrative fuck-up with my paperwork. I ended up, one of my good friends moved from Hawaii, and his dad was the Marine Corps recruiter. And his dad, I helped him. We were skateboarding together, and I helped him move into their house when they moved to town. And this was my senior, beginning of my senior year. And I... Went over to their house and his dad was like, hey, of course, like hits, hits me with the, the soft recruiting pitch and was like, do you have plans after school? Have you thought about joining the military? And I was like, yeah, I'm joining the Navy. To, I want to be a SEAL. And he was like, oh, and he didn't even push me. He didn't talk shit. He didn't say anything. And so he was very supportive, as a matter of fact. So I ended up graduating, no paperwork done. And I'm supposed to be like, as soon as I graduate and get handed my diploma, I'm supposed to be shipping out to boot camp to go to Navy boot camp and then go to SEAL training after that. Nothing happened. And so I call my recruiter. I'm like, what's going on? Oh, I don't know. There's some kind of admin. They're just slow processing the paperwork all figured out. Nothing happened. So I ended up graduating. I'm standing there, supposed to ship out. And at the time, my the girl that I was dating in high school, her dad, I was pretty tight with her dad. And her dad uh, was working at a gold mine. And they had some like family work program. So he put me into their family work program. And I went out to this gold mine and like just did manual labor. It's a miserable fucking job, but mm. it paid really good for the time. And I just shoveled dirt into sifters and did, you know, maintenance on huge machinery for all summer long. Made a great, made great money. Came back uh, at the end of the summer, still no, still no news from the Navy. Called the, Na called the Navy recruiter. I'm like, hey man, what's going on? And he hits me with this oh, yeah, I was going to call you. We've got good news and bad news. And I was like, what's the good news? The good news is we found your paperwork. And I was like, what do you mean found it? And he goes, it got lost. Hmm. And I was like, well, what's the bad news? And the bad news is he said, well, we're gonna, it's going to take six more months for you to get signed up into the Navy. And at that point in time, I was like, fuck this. I'm not hmm. waiting for another six months. So I immediately 
went to my buddy's dad and went to the Marine Corps recruiters. And I was like, Hey, what do you have? What do you guys have? That's like seals. And he showed me this, he showed me this cool video of, uh, Marine Corps boot camp, and the difference between Navy boot camp and Marine Corps boot camp is, in the Navy, you're, you're largely anything outside of SEALs and Naval Special Warfare. You're going to be on a ship as a sailor doing those type of things, and so it's a lot. Their boot camp is boring, and they don't do any weapons handling, and they don't do any. It's mainly just marching around and learning discipline, and learning how to the rank structure, and learning all those things, and learning how to be on a ship. It's not anything relative to what we do, which is ground combat operations. Mm-hmm. I, you had Marine boot camp video. They're like in camouflage with camouflage paint on their face, like coming up on the beach at nighttime with machine guns and stuff. And I, as a, as an 18 year old kid, you see that and you're like, oh man, that's, that is like Navy SEAL stuff. That's what I want to do. I ended up talking to him and he said, yeah, we can get you in two weeks. And so I was like, yeah, send me. So I signed up in the Marine Corps and I'm glad I made that decision. Yep. It was a great decision. Um, I don't regret my path at all. Signed up, went to the Marine Corps. We have the longest and hardest boot camp in the U.S. military. How long did that go for? It's three months long. Mm. And then after that, you go to another, I went to another two and a half months of infantry school and learned my occupation, which is basically... What was the purpose of the boot camp? Is it this, like you said, these movies and that sort of thing, is the purpose of it to break you? Yeah. They want to break you down and basically brainwash you and turn you into a killing machine that Mm. just will automatically respond to orders. And they do a really good job of it. So, especially the Marine Corps does mm. an amazing job of it. So, yeah, they can't in a in the situations that we work in, you can't have any kind of breakdown in discipline. You can't have any breakdown in the team cohesion aspect of it, which mm. is why they really go super hard in the paint with indoctrinating you into the military and turning you into what you're there for. Which is, and they don't make any. The minute you show up there and standing in the line, you're getting inducted into boot camp and the drill instructors are screaming in your face and they're like, you're here to learn how to kill. And if you have any, if you have any reservations about that, then you need to go stand over here. And we did. We had a couple of people that like quit immediately after getting off the bus. And I never saw them again. Don't know what happened to them. But we had two or three that immediately dropped. And that's what I was, I, I was there for that. I was there for the action. I was there to do the hardest thing that you could possibly do. And at the time, not in the Marine Corps, that was it. The Marine Infantry was it. So I, I proceeded on course with that and uh, graduated. Uh, I got meritoriously promoted to private first class and graduated as a squad leader from boot camp after three, three months, went to school of infantry. What did they identify in you to do that, to, to, to give you that status straight up? That's, that's, you would have been at the top of your field there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just if you display good leadership, really. If you have natural leadership ability and you can just take charge of a situation and give people, you can delegate, uh, you can delegate things and get people to execute given tasks quickly and efficiently. That's what they look for in boot camp. And I was just able to connect with guys and because we weren't training all the time. There would be like at nighttime when they would put us in, we'd have an hour of free time every night and then they'd put us in to our uh, bunks and shut off the lights and then the drill instructors would leave and we were just basically there. So your communication skills played a big part in that? Yeah, and so then, like, at nighttime, we would get up and, you know, or we would have what's called fire watch. So there's always, like, one person awake on duty at all times. And uh, we would have conversations, and I was just able to connect and had good communication skills. And I don't know, for whatever reason, the guys listened to listened to me when I gave direction or took charge of a situation. 
A lot of guys, they were not used to the whole yelling and screaming. And I think it was because I grew up in a really dysfunctional, abusive household. When I was a kid, my parents were always yelling and screaming at each other and fighting. And there's physical violence going on. I, when the drill instructors are in my face screaming, it didn't even phase me. And some guys couldn't, some guys couldn't handle it. We started with a platoon of, I think, 120 guys. And we ended up graduating 73 of us. So we lost a good amount of guys. We lost... What was that? 50 guys. Yeah, yeah. 50 guys from like different things. Like guys got hurt. Guys psychologically couldn't handle getting screamed at and would just break down and cry. Guys would quit. Yeah. So we had a really good attrition rate. We had guys that like came in and they were overweight and couldn't get their body weight down to what the standards were for being there. And so they were bumped back. They were, they had their choice. They can either get out or they can get bumped back. And they, they ended up leaving too. The attrition rate was decent during my time frame and then at the time was there any wars happening there would have been Iraq with Iraq was no nothing we did yeah so we had the Gulf War in 91 and then the most recent combat after that was and they just recently had the 40th anniversary of Task Force Ranger which was the Black Hawk Down yeah uh, which occurred in Somalia yeah in Mogadishu so were you were they specifically training you for anything like a, a war? What were they training you for? Yeah, like that's a Marine infantryman's primary goal. Like our the mission of the Marine Corps Rifle Squad is to locate, close with, and destroy the enemy by fire maneuver or to repel the enemy's assault by fire in close combat. Everything with like hand-to-hand combat, employment of weapon systems, tactics on how to move as a team and how to assault fixed positions, how to set up ambushes, how to conduct raids. Sounds like um, robbing a bank. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how yeah. we used to do it. Yeah, so it's, it's yeah, that's what our whole function is to be the the pointy end of when diplomacy fails, we're an alternate form of diplomacy. And if they send us, you, it's it's because they want everything killed and destroyed in the ba- in the battle space. Oh, we didn't want that in the bank. But anyway, yeah. hey, so tell me, coming out of that, coming out of that, you would have felt fit, mate. I'll tell you something now, fitness is a big part of my life. Yeah. You would have just been jumping out of your skin by the end of training. Yeah, it was, so in terms of, yeah, we worked out multiple times a day. It was like they, (laughs) it was, physical fitness is very much a a cultural thing that you start day one and we worked out, it's been 30 years, I think, since I've been to boot camp, but it like it, you carry that physical fitness standard with you through the entirety of your career in the military. Like we have an, we have a, a quarterly like physical fitness test, which is 20 dead dead hang pull-ups running a 5K in less than 18 minutes. That's quick. And then 100 sit-ups to get a perfect score. And then we, and then in addition to that, we, we used to do, we'd rock with like really heavy rucks really far. We'd when you say rucksacks, is that what you're talking about? Like something what you're carrying? Yeah, your backpack. Yeah, like your Bergen or your backpack basically will have, I think standard weight I think was like 20 to 30 kilos. That's enough. Yeah. And then you know one, about that in the diet. Yeah. And so we would carry that for, so I'm trying to do metric math in my head here. So, yeah, you, so you're, no, you're normally in pounds and you're doing well to convert it. Yeah. So we would usually do about 25K road marches with that kind of weight. And that was like the bottom end. We would do up to, I think the longest I did, longest we did was a 60K with a lot of weight. You come out of college, or you come out of the training. Yeah. What's the next step? So I can, uh, then you report to your unit. And your unit comes and picks you up and they put you on a bus and they take you and you get off of what we call the grinder, which is like our parade deck. And it's where we work. It's where we do organized physical fitness and it's where we do ceremonial drill and it's where we do all of our planning and staging for all of our training. And so you get dropped off on the grinder or we also call it the parade deck. You get there and it was probably one of the scariest things I've ever done at that moment in my life because I'd done well all through my training. 
and then I got to my unit and you get off and now you've got these non-commissioned officers, you've got corporals and sergeants that are there. And unlike the drill instructors, like there's no yelling and screaming. They don't do that. They just would like, they're just, their presence was so intense. And you looked at these guys and you were just like, holy cow. Cause you remembered from when you were in boot camp or in training, like corporals and especially sergeants in the Marine Corps, like when you're a private and you're coming in brand new, like your sergeants are gods, essentially like you they're super intimidating and yeah, they, these guys would take us and <laughs> we're in full dress uniform because you have to check in. So you're in full dress uniform. You've got two bags of kit with you. So you've got two bags that are like 15, maybe 20 kilos of all, everything you own, all your in- uniforms, all your equipment that you've been issued. Like you've got these two sea bags with you and they, you're in your dress uniform. So you're in these nice dress shoes with these thin dress socks. And so we had this hill that like went down from our parade deck and they would take us down the hill and then they would make a sprint with a duffel bag on each shoulder up the hill and then come back down and then up the hill. And we probably did that. I don't know how many times. And then they took us to the sand pit where the obstacle course is. And we ran the obstacle course in our dress uniform. And then we would, and then they smoked us and we did calisthenics for probably, I don't know, two two, three hours, and then we're just a mess. You're in your dress uniform, mm. you were all dressed. Everything Is it like was, a suit, yeah? yeah? Yeah, it's like a suit. And so you get smoked in that, and then you come back to the barracks, and then they, you know, then they check you in your room, and then um, you know, they leave you alone that first night, and you have to like completely un, you know, score away your kit, and then the next morning at 0430 in the morning is platoon PT, and you're out there with your whole platoon, and you get integrated into your team and your squad, and then you're the, then you're the fucking new guy. Did you form friendships pretty much straight away? Or was it like, because I'll tell you something, in prison, when you go there, you, you mm-hmm. find your crew. You find someone adopts you. Yeah, so we, that doesn't happen right away. Like, they're the, your team leader and your squad leader within your platoon. So there's three teams per squad. There's three squads per platoon. There's three pl- platoons per company. At the platoon level and in your squad level, like, you're being evaluated, especially at the squad level. You're being evaluated as the new guy, and but you're used to this because of you're, mm-hmm. you've experienced this most of your life yeah. through moving around and yep. stuff like that. So it's nothing new to you. Yeah. So it didn't bother me, but you're definitely getting evaluated. I can imagine it's like the first day you probably walk in and you're you're mm. inside and you're like getting sized up by yeah. people. Like they they do the same thing to us, and so they want to know what you're made of and what you're going to do and what you stand for and what type of person you are. And if you're just going to fold up under the first sign of stress. And so you get pressure tested a lot, whether it's like physical fitness. I remember there's, there were times where I was like kept awake for a couple days at a time or just doing everything they could to get you to break with just keeping you, not giving you any information on what was going on during the training or what the next training evolution was or not. Like you're just kept in a constant information vacuum on purpose because that creates stress, psychological stress. And if you don't, a lot of people couldn't handle that. A lot mm-hmm. of guys like didn't not knowing what's going on. So anyway, I was I got checked in, went through all of the like initial indoctrination hazing. They found out relatively quick that I was a dependable guy. And so when they found out I was a dependable guy, they handed me a belt fed machine gun. Wow. <laughs> which is not, fifty cal. Fifty cal? No, it was it was our five five six millimeter squad automatic weapon. So I was the automatic rifleman for my team. And, and That's so, a pretty good position, though, isn't it? Because people got to trust you to be in that position. They got to know you got a bit of grit about you. Yeah, it's by the book. It's supposed to be a position for a senior senior marine because it is a lot of responsibility to have mm. an automatic weapon. But 
we didn't always go by the book and a lot of times. Was there any psych testing amongst all this? The psychs or psychiatrists or anything play any part in any of this? You get psych tested and you get all your medical screening before you even go to boot camp. Mm. So before you even ship out to go to boot camp, you can... Mm. They get a fair idea of what you're made of. Uh, if, yeah. you're, if you're a psychopath or something like that. Or they yeah. Just... yeah, and then over time, like if guys are displaying mental instability or doing strange things, you'll get pulled out of an operational billet and they'll stick you into an admin billet. And then if yeah. you continue to act weird, then you'll, they'll send you for a medical separation and you'll get yeah. separated and kicked out. So Does that often, does that often happen much? Uh, I didn't really, I didn't, I, we didn't, I didn't see any of that happen during my time at all. Mm. But yeah, so I did my time or getting through all the hazing processes. And then as you mentioned, yeah, as soon as I proved that I was there and I could hold my own and that I was reliable and dependable and could operate under stress and could hold my own during physical fitness evolutions, I did well on the live fire ranges. Like we would do maneuver live fire ranges, which is another thing that you've got to be that you get looked at hard if you're safe or unsafe with a weapon system, especially with a machine gun. Like you're doing this, these exercises where you're maneuvering forward on a live fire range and you've got a machine gun, you're not careful. And you're, if you're an idiot, you can fuck up and shoot one of your buddies and then mm -hmm. that's a bad day for everyone. So, yeah. Well, yeah, there's a lot of training and a lot of trust that goes into that. And once I proved all of that, then yeah, I had my team leader and my squad leader both take me under their wing and start developing me. And I was there... I was in my platoon for probably about two or three months. And then um, I was at the, I was going to the, the dining facility to eat. And there was a flyer on the door that was a flyer for a Marine Scout sniper indoctrination and selection and assessment. And so I looked at that and it was something immediately that I was like, oh, wow, like another level up. It's something that's harder. Cool. Mm -hmm. I, I want to go check that out and see what that's all about. And so they didn't usually let new guys go to that. And I went to my squad leader and I had this great squad leader. His name is Garrett. And he was, he was an uh, amazing guy. Um, and he was one of the ones that took me under his wing. And like, he really liked me. And we got along because we we're both from the country and we both grew up on ranches. So um, he's is that what you really want to do? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, man, you're a new guy. He's like, they're going to break you. They're going to break you. And I was like, yeah, cool. Fucking bring it. <laughs> I want to do it. I love that. And so he was like, all right you want to do this? And I was like, yep. So he sent my request up the chain of command and it was approved. And I reported in and went to a two week ass assessment selection for Marine Scout snipers. And I was a private first class and it was a brutal process. And the whole second week you don't sleep. And uh, there was one point in time where we were on a force march and we were carrying at that time, we were carrying 50 kilo rucks and for, yeah, for about 25 kilometers. And then we had this this last week where we, the last week of it was pretty fucking brutal where we, they would send us to an area to do observation and we would have to send in a position report of where we were at. And we had our cadre or our instructors that were already in the platoon that were assessing us. They would come out and they would like act as the opposition force and they would come in and they would like throw tear gas into our positions and they would tear gas us. And then they would throw an arty simulator in there, which like sounds like artillery and it like gives you this mock explosion, flash and explosion. It's like a firework. I've been tear gassed. It's not much fun. Yeah, it, it sucks. Yeah. yeah. And so then we have these, what's called a break in contact drill, which is when you are in a small reconnaissance element, you get hit by a larger enemy force. You're supposed to do conduct what's called a break of contact. So you create fire superiority with your small arm systems, and then you basically run for it to establish time, space, and distance between you and the opposing force. And so we did that several times. They just kept doing that to us. Every, they would send us to these positions where it was a kilometer or I'm sorry, not a kilometer. It was three to five kilometers to get there over really shitty terrain. 
and we would get there carrying these ridiculously heavy rocks set up and right about the time we'd set up we'd call in our position report and then here comes the cadre again and so they did that to us all night for the second night and it fucking sounds like hell oh yeah it was, it was miserable and so then we would sit we would have to stay awake and be on full security in our position to no coffee no nothing no yeah, that's why on my page. So if you get on my personal page, it says silently suffer. Yeah. That was a saying that we had, suffer silently and silently suffer, which means do your job at the highest level you're capable of. Everybody is suffering, so shut your fucking mouth and just deal with it. Yeah. And that's what we did. Mm. And um, we're getting tear gassed, we're doing executing, and we're just physically wiped out. So then they conduct the ultimate mind fuck on us where they're like, all right, you're finally going to get extract. You're going to exfil. And we were like, oh, cool, awesome. But it was like... I think it was like 10 kilometers over a really steep, nasty mountain to get to our extraction site. So we execute this movement. We get there. We got there pretty early because we hustled and moved out. And it was miserable going over the top of that mountain. But we got down to, and you could see the vehicle that you're supposed to jump on. And we thought it was over. And then I think this was on a Thursday. Or no. Yeah. This was on Thursday. Yeah, Thursday night. This was Thursday night. And we, we saw the vehicle sitting there. And we executed our far near recognition signals. We established communication over the radio. And then we start moving in for our link up to get on our extraction. And then we think it's the end of the exercise and it's over and we're done. Here comes the cadre again. They already sim us. They throw more tear gas at us. They ambush us. And then the vehicle takes off. So we execute a break in contact. And we did that effectively again. And so then they stopped us and they're like, okay, you're, you've been compromised at your extraction site. Now you're going to, because the vehicle left, you're going to have to move on foot to friendly lines. And the friendly lines movement was like a 20-mile movement. So it was like... 36 k yeah, yeah, 36 k to get there. Mm. So we literally walked underweight. And luckily at that time, they, they were done messing with us at that point. And at that point, it was just a suck fest of like, we hadn't eaten for three days. We had plenty of water. They kept us topped off with water, but we had no food. And we just walked under, you know, a 50 kilo ruck. So we finally, you know, got there. And it was one of the most, and I've told this story a lot to people, it was one of the most miserable, physically and mentally miserable times of my life. But it was also that moment that got me through a lot of hard situations during actual combat operations. And um, it was also something that's served me for the rest of my life through what I've, what I've been through and what I've done in terms of getting through difficult situations. Mm. And so I... Walked for, we walked all night, and I just was like, keep putting one foot in front of the other. And by this point, like, my feet are heavily... Were you delirious? Do you get the, oh, yeah. You get delirious? Yeah. Yeah, because we hadn't slept all week. Yeah. Yeah, so we hadn't slept for five days. And It's amazing what the mind can do when it wants to do something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's... it's, it's the SEALs have their similar version of it during Hell Week, during their training, which is massively... Like, they've got one of the toughest, like, highest attrition rates with their training. But this... Like, we didn't sleep for five days. We're carrying rocks down the beach. We're just trying to get, to, we're just, because the condition, the task condition and standard they gave us is if you're not at the, if you're not in safe lines by sunup, you're, you fail. Hmm. So you have a time standard. Hmm. And so you're moving as quick as you can after getting the shit kicked out of you all week. And your crotch is, you're just, you got road rash and you're just like, you've got, you're just beat up. You've got sand in every orifice of your body. This is like sandpaper on the inside of your uniform, just tearing your skin up and just basically giving you a nice, nice rash. The cha- the chafing was off the scale, <laughs> so, yeah. and then your feet are like blistered, massively blistered up from rucking with that amount of weight all over the place, up and down mountains. So it was a pretty shitty, painful thing to get through. And I just remember 
keep going. And I'm 19 years old at this point. And I remember just saying, just keep going. The sun will rise. This will be over. This will end. And I just kept going. I just kept walking and walking. And then finally we saw the vehicle right. Like we made it just within minutes of our cutoff time. Mm -hmm. And then the sun came up. And then I remember in that moment when they were like, okay, index, go ahead and drop your rucks. And taking that rucksack off after wearing it all week when it weighed that much that weighed that much felt like it was amazing take the feeling of taking that ruck off and finally being knowing that you're actually done and that you made it and survived and passed was a great feeling and so i've just kept that as a metaphor in my life for when things get hard i'm like okay just keep walking the sun will come up just keep putting one foot in front of the other and the sun will rise Mm. and that's it's that has served me well through my career and it served me well in my civilian life with dealing with adversity in adverse situations. When that was over, did you get a chance to sleep for a couple of days or anything like that? Or what was the rest period they give you? Yeah, so we finished up things on a Friday and then we we went back and cleaned all of our gear up, turned all of our gear in that they issued us. And then they had us clean up and we did a, and then Saturday, like then we got to sleep all night on Friday night. And then at 7 a.m. the next morning, um, we had a uniform inspection and they conducted a uniform inspection on us. And then they had a, the final part of it was a oral board where you go in and they like interview you. And there's a, uh, basically all the team leaders, the platoon sergeant and the platoon leader, the officer in charge are, all sit behind a table and you report into them. And then they just ask you questions and they board you. And that's what, that's the final test really. And if you pass your oral board and they like your answers and it's everything from ethics to basic knowledge of weapon system, max effect, effective range and firing rates and how to call for fire, how to call for medevac, all of those things. You had to memorize all of that stuff. Mm. They would ask you all that. And if you couldn't rattle it off, we had two guys that physically passed everything, but then they couldn't like, they didn't pass their oral board, so they didn't get selected. And then, yeah, that was the final test, and we did that on Saturday. And then they said, okay, we'll have answers for you by Monday. You guys are now off. You can, and so we had Sunday off, and then we reported back into our parent command, which was my old company that I came from. And then they sent word on Monday afternoon that who had been selected and who hadn't been selected. And I was one of the ones that got selected. And so I packed my gear and then re-reported in to them the following week. And then I was in a scout sniper platoon for four, three, three and a half years from 95 to, or 96 to roughly 99. When was the sort of first time, how long were you there before you got shipped off to to action, basically? Yeah, so at the time that I was in, it was the Clinton administration and nothing exciting was going on. We had Somalia veterans that were like, that we massively looked up to because they went, they had combat experience. Mm. And, but at that time there was nothing going on. Mm-hmm. And so I elected to go on reserve status and go, you know, when you're on reserve status, you can go back to a c- civilian life mm-hmm. and then you're on a reserve capability to where if they need you, they can call you back. Or if you decide you want to come back, it's a lot easier for you to come back. So I was on a reserve status for two years and I got out from, what was it? I got out in 99 and then come, I think it was like, yeah, it was 2000. Was it 2001? Yeah, 2001. Spring of 2001, I just missed the military and I decided I wanted to go back. I didn't like Mm -hmm. civilian life that much. I really missed all my mates and I missed the camaraderie and the the lifestyle, basically, and the discipline and just the life was awesome. I really gravitated to it. So I wanted to go back 
And so I put but in. When you go into those high pressure situations with those guys, you, you form a pretty strong bond. Oh, but yeah, the, people don't understand. I've been in some pretty heavy duty situations, mm-hmm. basically war zones and different prisons. And me and the guys that went through that have got lifelong bond. Yeah. Yeah, it's extremely, yeah. The, yeah, when you're in a hard situation and the guys on your right and left step up, like you do establish an amazing bond with a lifelong bond. Like I still have a few guys that I still talk to, like I'm still close with. We talk all the time. So got out, did reserve time, then wanted to come back in, filled out paperwork, but they were once again being amazingly slow with the paperwork. And so I got offered a job doing construction and field engineering work down in, down in Georgia. So I left and went down to Georgia. And I was working on, we were working, the company I was working for was working on building the science building at Emory University. And so I was doing the layout and snapping the chalk lines for where we were going to pour the concrete pedestal that was going to hold the observatory telescope for the science center. And my mom texted me and she said, hey, a plane just hit a building. And I was like, oh, yeah, anyway, mom. Everyone remembers where they were and then that happened. Oh, yeah. Yep. I remember it like it was yesterday. And so she texted me again 10 minutes later and she was like, it's really serious. Are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. And then it was almost break time. It was almost morning break time. So I went down to the site trailer where the senior engineers and the superintendent and our uh, construction foreman like hung out and where we would go to eat lunch or take breaks or whatever and drink coffee. So I go down there and there we had a TV in there and they're all, when I opened the door and walked in, all the engineers were standing around the TV and no, nobody was saying anything. And I walked in and I'm like, what's going on? And nobody responded to me. And I just like pushed my way into the, crowd of them and I watched live the second plane hit the second tower live on TV and I looked at our superintendent and I was like that is not a mistake that is likely a terrorist attack and they could be hitting targets all up and down the east coast so we need to shut the site down and go home because things are about to get really crazy and he was like yeah you're right so he shut the site down and before I could get back or I think right as I was getting back, I rode my mountain bike back to my apartment, got in my apartment, flipped on the TV, and then that was when the uh, plane hit the Pentagon. The third plane hit the Pentagon. And a week after everything had settled down from 9-11, the Marine Corps called me back, and they're like, hey, your reenlistment package has been approved, and you can return to active duty. So I went back and reported in in October of 2001. Their sniper and recce section was full. They were fully staffed. One of my One of my really good friends from my prior platoon had transferred over to this other unit and he was there. So I had friends immediately upon getting there and he's a great dude, but they had no room. So I had to go down to the amphibious raid company and, and I was a chief scout swimmer and a team leader at a, in the amphibious raid company. And we did a workup, training workup, and then we did a deployment to the Middle East and it was- How did that feel? Because you're going into the action- that was the thing is we weren't immediately going into the action and none of us could really figure out what the problem was. We couldn't figure out what was going on because all of us, the, we had we had guys on the ground already by that point in, in Afghanistan just cleaning house and we wanted to be part of that. And for whatever reason, the Marine Corps wasn't allowed to initially play in large-scale operations. The Marine Expeditionary Unit responded to it when it first kicked off, but after that, it was largely an Army and... U.S. Army Special Operations Command-driven uh, operation, and the CIA was there. CIA had guys on the ground too, prior to all of that. So we we were upset because we weren't getting in in on the action, and we went to Hawaii and we did a big training workup with the Army in Hawaii. Then we sailed over to we sailed to where did we go next? We sailed up to oh I remember we sailed to Singapore. We pulled into port at Singapore. We had a couple days off in Singapore. Then we went to 
Bahrain, and we pulled in at Bahrain, refitted the ship, then we sailed over to Kuwait. And uh, while we were in Kuwait, we actually got hit with a terrorist attack. We were on, we were training in Kuwait, and we were at, we were on a spot called Falaka Island, which was this old resort island just off the coast of Kuwait, which they abandoned during the Gulf War. And so it's just this whole island of like houses, really nice high-end, like huge houses that nobody lives in. So we, uh, we use it as a training facility to do urban combat stuff. So we worked with the uh, Kuwaiti SOF and Special Operations Forces, and we worked with uh, their regular army, and we did training work up. And while we were there, I missed it. They rotated us out to a different range on the mainland in the Udari Ranges, which is out in the middle of the desert. So two days... They've moved us out there enough. We were there for two days, and a Al-Qaeda affiliate got into a vehicle and drove down the beach and shot and killed three Marines on the beach while we were out there training. And we didn't, it was a training exercise. We didn't have any live fire ammunition, or at least the bulk of the guys didn't have any ammunition. It's, so luckily, our guard force that was there had some ammo, but by the time they were able to respond, and they did eliminate the threat, they ended up killing those three guys. The We already lost three Marines because they were just... They drove right by our campsite and started shooting people. And so we got hit there. And then that was a huge deal. And then we ended up going to Jordan and we got helicoptered into Jordan and we ended up working with the Jordanian army and training them for a long time. And then I think we sat, we were in Jordan for a long time. We were in Jordan for, I think, for two months. And Is it a beautiful country, Jordan? Oh, yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, we, they did give us some liberty. We, we were able to, right before we got back on the ship and left, we were able to do some touristing, and that was when I was a, I went around and toured around Aqaba, and then we um, got to go out to the lost city of Petra, mm. and I got to see Petra, which is really awesome. Uh, and then we got back on the ship, and then we sailed home. And I remember while we were sailing back to the United States, all of us kept thinking, we're here in the Middle East right now. We're in the Persian Gulf right now. Like, why aren't we going to Afghanistan? And a lot of us were, like, upset about it and couldn't figure out what was going on. And, of course, chain of command's not telling you anything. So we keep going, and we get to Hawaii. We have liberty in Hawaii, and then we're sailing back to San Diego. And we're, it's a, I think it's like a four- to six-day sail from Hawaii to San Diego. And... Our commanding officer, our company commander, pulls us up on the flight deck. And we have a company formation. Hey, you guys, when you're at home, really enjoy your time for your leave block. And uh, spend time with your families and make sure you do all the, make sure it's good quality time. Because there's an opportunity that we could be going to combat relatively soon in Iraq. And I remember looking at my, because Iraq wasn't even on our radar screen. Like, nobody was even thinking about Iraq, mm. at least at our level. Nobody was thinking about Iraq. Everybody was thinking about Afghanistan. And so I looked at my buddy who's a machine gunner. He's in the machine gun team that was attached to us. And I, I looked at him and I said, did he say Iraq? And he goes, yeah. And I said, did he mean Afghanistan? And he goes, I don't know. And so we, we ended up going home. And when we got home, we had just a few days of, we were, I, was supposed to be, I was supposed to have 26 days off. And I hadn't seen my family in 11 months. And so I was supposed to have 26 days off of post-deployment leave. And we got emergency recalled in eight, in eight days. So I had eight days at home. And then we rushed back to San Diego, jumped right back on ships, and sailed to, back to the Persian Gulf to conduct the invasion of Iraq. And they briefed us on everything while we were sailing over. That was like a, a six- or eight-week sail from San Diego to the Persian Gulf to Kuwait. 
and then we got to Kuwait, and they healed us off the off the ships we were on, and they took us to a tactical assembly area called Coyote, which was on the in the Kuwaiti desert on the Iraqi border, and they put us there, and we were there for I think three weeks, three weeks prepping, and then we invaded Iraq, and that was my first experience with actual combat operations. What was your part? What were you doing? Were you as a team leader? Yeah. So I had so four, when you, four guys. How many soldiers did you have in your team? I had I had four Marines under me. Yeah. Or, th- or three three Marines under me. Yeah. And what was your purpose there? Were you just were you char- just charging on a front line? Were you in vehicles? Were you on yeah, foot? So, yeah. So we were on. We had armored vehicles, and mm-hmm. we were charged with basically crossing the border and eliminating all of the Iraqi forces that we come into contact with. The first few days was really quiet. We didn't really have much resistance. And then we, there was a situation that was highly publicized. There was a girl by the name of Jessica Lynch who was a United States Army soldier, and she was with a logistical supply company. And they drove into a place called Nazaria, and they were ambushed by Republican Guard and Saddam Fedayeen forces. And she was taken captive and held hostage and then taken to a facility and then there was a marine unit called the task force ripper that pushed into the city right after that and they were heavily engaged by saddam fedayeen forces and part of the republican guard armored elements and they suffered heavy casualties and that was the first time my friend brendan reese was killed he was serving in that unit and he was he was killed during that action and when the, how quick do you know that happened i didn't know until i got home because mm. he was he was serving in a unit that was on the east coast yeah and so he's in a completely different task unit than i was but mm. they went into the city before us they were the first elements within into the city besides the, the army unit that got ambushed where that girl was taken hostage now when you hear that hostage that makes you pretty dirty yeah yeah at the time yeah mm. now my opinion of things now is entirely different than it used to be like it's war yeah Shit happens in war. People die in war. Innocent people get killed in war, and that's just that's how it is. It's yeah. an, it's the unfortunate, shitty reality, but that's the way things are. I've spent a lot of time pulling apart my own trauma, my own survivor guilt, my own issues with all of that. Trying to why did I live and so die, and yeah. why couldn't I have been there to save him, and why couldn't I have been there to save the other guy, and and it's wasted effort. Yeah. And you don't realize that until you heal. Often it is with trauma. Often yeah. we, the, some of our thinking is just a waste. Yeah. Yeah, so that she got captured. And then there's a movie, if you ever get a chance to check it out, it's called Generation Kill. It was on HBO. And it's a, it's a, pretty, decently, it's a pretty decent depiction of a whole operation. And I, I got a chance while I was standing on that bridge. I watched uh, General Mattis, who was our—he was my commanding general, and he was also then Secretary of Defense under Trump for a brief period of time. Phenomenal man, phenomenal combat leader. He's the modern-day General Patton, just an impeccable leader. Dude, was, he's amazing. Just a warrior through and through. But I watched him fire our regimental commander on the bridge, and then we, he ordered us in to go into the city and handle it. So my unit was the lead element to go in after the army unit had been ambushed and that girl had been taken hostage. And then after, after Task Force Ripper got eight chewed up really bad. So we went in and we knew that it was game time. We knew we were going to get really heavy enemy resistance, and we did. So we got on vehicles and we took our armored vehicles into the city. We strong-pointed the main highway running through. We dismounted and got off on both sides and then just started killing everything that was that was a threat. And we got engaged immediately. Funny enough, like 
when the ramp went down on my armored vehicle, I was carrying a really amount, heavy amount of weight. I was on night vision goggles. Our night vision goggles back then were not as good as they are today. So I had a single tube on one eye and my depth perception was off. So <laughs> I stepped off the ramp and then I turned. And as I turned, I looked and I saw tracer fire. It was like a laser light show. Just lasers flying back and forth, which were bullets. And I stepped off the... there On the highway, there was a median and there was about... I don't know, eight to 10 inches of highway and then dirt. And because I had no depth perception, I was on night vision. I, mm. I, I stepped off of that and I fell yeah. and I rolled down into the middle of the median while bullets are flying on. Maybe it's safe. So I fell to the ground and then I got quickly got back up to a knee and assessed the situation and then saw several rooftops right across the road, probably about in between 80 and 110 meters away where we were getting engaged and muzzle flashes were coming at us. And so my I just moved my team up online with the rest of the teams in my squad, and we just started engaging and yeah, just started uh, getting after it and was in a sustained firefight for 13 hours until the sun came up. Sun went down, and the gunfight started. And, is that and, when most of them happened during the nighttime, is it? No, it varied. A lot of the operations that we conduct, because we had superior technology at the time with night vision and thermal sensors, we preferred to fight at nighttime because yep. um, it gave us a really distinct advantage. But the during this point in time... Early on, like sometimes you're fighting at night, some majority of the time you're fighting during the day. So, the 13 hour first gunfight, and then that's a good long fight, yeah. And then we finally pushed the rest of the division, pushed through our position, and we were able to punch through Nazaria and then continue on the assault. And we collapsed back down onto our vehicles after all the vehicles had pushed through, and then picked up rear security and moved on with the moved on with the operation does anyone give you an account of what who died or whatever they lost 40 or whatever yeah so we didn't have any casualties in my unit during the invasion that's a pretty good result you got to be happy with that yeah it's because we had so much time training together we were the senior battalion in the marine corps at the time in terms of the amount of training and the amount of time that we had spent together plus they did a thing called stop loss where they basically prevented all of the senior people that were supposed to be getting off of active duty or switching to reserve time, they prevented that from happening. So you had a very senior group of Marines that had worked together for a very long time. That makes a difference, yeah. Yeah, like 36, I think we'd been together for 36 months and done all kinds of training workup and then deployed and then came back and had eight days off and then redeployed again. So we were like really at the top of our game in terms of level of experience and maturity and like cohesion as a unit. And that really paid off massively. And so we were able to pull off a really successful deployment where we saw a lot of action and we just didn't, I think we had a couple of guys get wounded, but we did not, we didn't lose anybody during the invasion. What was one of the most traumatic things you saw over there? That's something that haunts you now. To answer that question, there's a couple of things that stick out in my mind. When we were pushing through Southern Iraq um, we went, I can't remember the name of the village, but we went through this village and we saw a mass grave site where the Bathists, the Republican Guard and the, the Saddam Fedayeen machine gunned about f- probably three to 500 Shia Muslims and uh, threw them in a ditch. So there's this open, massive grave with uh, everything in there. Yeah. Yeah. So seeing that was pretty, that was massively eye-opening i'd never seen that many dead people in my life before so i was like holy shit does that ever haunt you that like does it, you've had bad dreams or is anything like that no? it didn't happen it didn't come until years later yeah you know, it didn't come until i started like my healing practices of getting past my ptsd which largely manifested in the form of anger and frustration so mm. i've seen a murder i've seen a couple of murders in jail and never affected me there and then mm-hmm 
just started to sneak up on me a couple of years later. Yeah, that's the way it is. Mm. When you're in that moment, we were young, we were highly trained, we knew it was our job, mm. we knew what we were there for. Death was just part of the equation for what you're doing in that jo- in that particular job. So we didn't. At the time, I was in the time it definitely raised my eyebrow, and I was like, "Wow!" But I'd never. It didn't bother me until years later, and then. So that was one of the things that really affected me later on. But seeing that was eye-opening. And then, then on our second deployment, when we went to Iraq, is when we started taking heavy casualties. We went home for six months, and then they spun us back up and. When we went back to the... In that six months, you maintained training or you, like when you're back? Yeah. Just yes. like a basic training type yep. stuff? So we picked up with training. We had some time off. We had, we got does, someone, did, does, does someone come along and do a debrief with after what you've been doing? Yeah. So we do, we, de- we debrief everything we do. It's called mm-hmm. an AAR or an after action review. And so we after action review every single thing that we, what we do on the training, on a, in a training capacity or in mm-hmm. an operational capacity, because we want to inherently get better at what we do. And we want to. But is it about to get better at what you do or to see how you're dealing with it? Is that a part of it? Yeah. It's a, it, no, not so much. It's to get better at what we're doing and not make the same mistakes again. And it's also to observe what the enemy is doing and how they responded to what we do so that we can adjust to what they're doing and stay a few steps ahead of them in terms mm-hmm. of what our tactics, techniques, and procedures are. So we came home. We got back in a training cycle. Then we redeployed back to Iraq in just six months later and then um, was back in it again. And that was a super kinetic, ultra-violent deployment. We lost... 33 from my battalion, some of which were really good friends of mine. And how do you take that? How do you, how does did that affect you at the time that it was it a, di- a delay reaction on it? You think? Yeah, it did. Yeah, it did affect me at the time, but you can't afford to like, you can't afford to analyze it when you're. So you disassociate? Yeah, you disassociate while you're in it. And then you come back to it at mm. a later time. And a lot of these things, like I said, they didn't start hitting me until like years later. And it was a cumulative effect because mm. I did, you know, I ended up, I did three deployments in Iraq and then I ended up doing six in Afghanistan, um, which we haven't got to that part yet. But the, cumulatively over time, it just starts to affect you and affect your performance and affect your mind state and affect your health. And yeah, I got later on in life, I had to do a massive amount of work to deal with my anxiety, my depression, my stress, my anger. All of that, hmm. but and all byproducts of what happened to you over there and what you witnessed. And yeah, yeah. We did you with the benefit of hindsight. <clears throat> do you look back and say that's a little bit of this, that's a little bit of that? Yeah. After having my healing practice, in terms of what I've done for healing, I I have a very acute now I have a, a very acute attention to detail when it comes to being able to analyze things and pick out certain things and say, okay, I'm feeling that because this happened or Mm. I know. And I I recognize it in other people. Yeah, that's what I'm good at. Yeah. Seeing me and other people. mm -hmm. Like I can look at other people now and I can immediately break down if I know them, especially if I know them well, Mm. I can break down other people and be like, oh, they're feeling that way because this happened to them or they're stressed Mm. out because of this or that. I see it. I see it in people with propensity for violence. I, Mm -hmm. I often see some sort of exposure to trauma. Yeah. I see people that self-sabotage, some sort of exposure to trauma, drug use, Mm -hmm. exposure to trauma. And I think, let's move on to Afghanistan because I have this picture of Afghanistan. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. I see these movies and 
and you've got the special forces guys mm-hmm. turn up in a car and they've got long hair and they're not in uniform. Is that a fair depiction? Did you see any of that over there? Oh, yeah. Like, so it's a, yeah. certainly an accurate depiction, yeah. yeah. And so I'll segue into Afghanistan by saying the second deployment to Iraq, in which case I participated in the second battle of Fallujah. Mm. I was given a tremendous amount of responsibility. I was in charge of our partner force. So I... When the partner force, is that with other countries? Is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, so I was integrated with the Iraqis. Yeah. And... Could it, you trust them at that time? Was that... Were they... Yeah, it was part of the rapport building process of... I ran the training detachment for our regiment for the bulk of that deployment. And so I had a lot of experience working with those guys. Yeah. And I, you know, still Anitachi Arabishwaya a little bit. So, I can so you learned the lingo? Uh, I can speak a little bit of Arabic, yeah. yeah. So I uh, was able to um, learn their language, work with them, really pay attention to their customs and culture. Like I would, you know, I did, I knew that was the key, the key to really being super successful with, uh, you know, yeah. be, earning their trust and their respect. Mm. That's um, what I say. Give respect, get respect. Yeah. So I paid very close attention to their customs, their cultures. I would go out and pray with them in the morning mm. and I'd drink tea with them at nighttime mm. and I would talk to them about their families and their kids. They love to talk about their family. They're mm. very family oriented. And I was able to establish a high level of rapport with them. And we just got to a point where we really trusted each other. And one of the last classes I had was with a fellow, his name is Colonel Jossin Mohammed, and he got selected. He graduated from my course, and then he went to, went back to his unit, and I don't even know where he was at, where they were stationed at, but he got selected to be the main partner force effort that was going to be attached to us for the operation in Fallujah. And I had an amazing rapport with that man. He was great. He spoke pretty decent English. He was very well educated, and we went to, we, we really, I enjoyed my time while we were training him, and we, him and I had a really strong connection, and because of that, when he was told by our regimental commander that he was going to be part of our training operation, or I'm sorry, the invasion operation, he said, I'm not going unless Sergeant Bishop's with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my commander was like, okay. <laughs> so he called my command and he's get Sergeant Bishop over here. And so he integrated me with his Iraqi unit. And, and you were in a sergeant by this stage, were you? Yeah, I was yeah. a sergeant by this time. And mm-hmm. so I got integrated with him and had a very small team. I had three Marines with me. I had a gun truck. I had air assets. I had a communication suite. When you say assets, air assets, is that access to planes and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah, access to planes, and which I had during the course Gee. of the operation. I had three controls on targets, with which is in, in the Marine Corps at the time is unheard of because the officers largely ran our air. Like we had officers that were, were called forward air controllers, and they would run our air support, but they tasked me. I basically was holding a captain's billet as a sergeant. Mm. And so you're engaged. Yeah. You're engaged, right? How long before you call air supporting, how, before they're there? When we launched there, within minutes of coming into the Because they're city. doing F-18s and stuff like yeah. that, is that right? Yeah, we had, I had two F-16 controls, and then I had a control on a, a C-130 gunship, which is a larger plane that has a 100 howitzer on it and then chain gun. And they... It's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, it's a huge amount of responsibility for my age. I think I was 25 at the time, 24, 25 at the time. And I'm maneuvering 300 Iraqis, and I'm responsible for my gun truck and my three Marines, and I have air assets assigned to me. So, yeah, it was a tremendous amount of responsibility. Mm -hmm. So we conducted that operation, very kinetic. We were basically, the operation lasted eight weeks, and we cleared the city of Fallujah, and we were in gunfights and killing bad guys at bad breath distance every single day. Several situations where 
I didn't think I was going to make it out of it and ended up, thank goodness, making out of it, but was killing people at as close as we are sitting right here right now. Really? You get that close? Yeah. 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 Is that, are you on your feet by this time? So are you walking into buildings and stuff like that? Is that what you're doing? Yeah. Yeah. That was what my speciality was at that time was like That's building clearance. So you're walking into a building and you know possible there's someone in there tooled up. Oh, there, you, you, yeah, you know without a doubt. We had a situation that I responded to where we had a one of our Iraqi units was getting ambushed and I was around the corner. I was like two blocks down the street monitoring air assets. And they called for help. And they took a few wounded. We had three guys get wounded. And what happened is we had three insurgents that were three foreign fighters that were in the second story building of a house. And they were shooting out the windows into the street. And they wounded a few. Luckily, they didn't kill any of our Iraqi guys, but they wounded three of them, and they called us for help. They if they're in a gunfight, are they tar- their main target, if they see you or an Iraqi, do they want to kill the Iraqi more than they want to kill you? No. As soon as I pulled, as soon as I pulled around the corner in my in my gun truck, they started shooting at us. And luckily, I had a few bullets hit the street next to us, and then bounce up and ricochet off the blast shield that I had on my on my gun. We came up. I set up a support fire position. We I depleted my can of ammunition on my gun, and then we were still taking fire from the house. And so at that point, I dismounted the vehicle and grabbed two Iraqis that were standing off to the side underneath this. They were up against the compound wall where the they were in defilade, so that the insurgents couldn't didn't see them. And I grabbed these guys, and we breached the gate. We went into the house and cleared the first floor. Went up to the second floor, started getting shot out immediately from down the hallway. And then we started shooting back. Fuck, this is heavy. And then I saw a foot stick out from the doorway. And I've always been taught in a gunfight, if you see a piece, blow it off. <laughs> I shot him in a foot and it, he jumped. I heard him scream and he jumped back and then there was an explosion. Boom. So he exploded himself, did Yeah, he was prepping a grenade okay. when I shot him in the foot. He, is, he, was, he had his foot outside the door and he was getting ready to pull a pin on a He was pulling in the process of pulling the pin on his grenade and throwing it out the door. And when I shot him in the foot, he dropped the grenade and fell back in the room. And the grenade went off. And so then we pushed down the hallway, cleared a couple more rooms, and then the I threw another grenade, my own grenade, into the room just to be sure. And then I entered the room, and it was pretty smoky and dusty from the explosion. But the guy that I shot in the foot had blown himself up and killed himself. But his mate, between that explosion and the grenade that I threw in, he was heavily wounded and disoriented and up against the wall, but he was still had his AK across his lap. And so I didn't take any chances and I just gave him about five or six rounds to the mm-hmm. high thoracic and face when I came in the room and then cleared the building. So that was the type of combat that we were involved in for eight, that was an average day for eight weeks straight. And there were other, other situations that were like just as heavy as that, but that was basically eight weeks of that. Let's talk about Afghanistan. Talk about how you ended up in Afghanistan. What happened? Yeah, so what was happening in the Marine Corps at that time was we were sending guys that had no experience into lead guys that did have experience. Mm. And it was creating massive cultural problems within our organization because you had guys like me that were at a certain level that had massive combat experience. And then you had superiors that were coming in that were calling the shots and trying to drive the training and trying to drive the tactics that we were using. And they were, had no experience because they were on instructor billets or they were doing other things besides leading in combat. So when we got back, they rotated into these billets. And I just, I saw situations where these guys, because of lack of experience, caused people to get hurt and killed, my mates to get hurt and killed. So I lost confidence in the organization 
and decided I wanted to be done and punched my ticket, got out. And then that's when I had friends of mine that were SEALs at Naval Special Warfare that were working in the defense contracting space. And they called me up and they were like, hey, we want to, we're heading down to Hurricane Katrina. Hurricane Katrina was happening at that yeah, time. Them. And so I was getting off du- active duty. I was on, term- we call it terminal leave, which is like your vacation time that you can take, but you basically are out when it ends and you don't go back to work. You're done. So I was on terminal leave. In that time, were you displaying any sort of trauma effect? I didn't realize at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was having massive like anger issues Mm. and I didn't realize it. And the reason I didn't realize it is because I had developed a lot of anger from my childhood. Mm. And all my childhood trauma. You normalized it, yeah. Yeah. So it was normal to me for me to get pissed off really easy and put Mm. my fist into some drywall or rip a cabinet door off Mm. and throw it at somebody. I was a fucking ginger hothead. Mm. (laughs) Come with the red hair. Yeah. I moving down basically dealing with those anger issues and all of that was is difficult but going back to getting recruited i went to hurricane katrina i linked up with my seal team buddies wild really wild things happened there i thought we were going there to do a humanitarian aid and rescue operations and we actually went there and we're doing security and stability operations and, ass- and assisting law- federal law enforcement with sequestering organized crime and really dangerous bad situations that were happening where people are getting murdered. And so <clears throat> the program manager for the defense contracting company was there with that team and he saw my performance. And I was just totally there volunteering with my friends. Like I wasn't getting paid. And he saw what I did and saw my performance. And so he came up to me and gave me a card and said, hey, I want to I want to invite you to our assess- assessment selection. So I said, okay. And it was for uh, Blackwater. So I went to, I think three weeks later, I went to Blackwater assessment selection, just two weeks long. And after everything I'd been through and all my experience level, it wasn't that difficult of a selection to get through. It was pretty easy, actually. Got through that, got selected, and then got put on one of the first teams going into Afghanistan. And that's when my world really opened up. And I was used to doing conventional military operations. So what were you acting as special forces, were you? Is that what you're basically acting as when you're going to? Yeah. So I'm not a a tabbed or badged special operator but in terms of the U.S. military, but I did conduct military special operations Mm. as a defense contractor. Yeah, yeah. So the first job that I had was they put me, there was a guy from Army Special Forces. He's a Green Beret and older fellow, spoke Arabic, very experienced, several, he had I think three or four deployments in Afghanistan already on active duty. And then he got out and he, he retired. He did 20 years and he was his, he was my partner and really knowledgeable guy. He taught me so much, but he was, he taught me basically what we call advanced force operations or AFO, which is going in and preparing battle space for additional operations, uh, follow on operations. And so you're responsible for like setting up the logistics of things. And like mm. you go in and you establish human, human intelligence networks. You go in and set up safe houses, build rapport with the locals and build a local guard force. You build a local supply chain. You find cooks and cleaners, butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers mm, to come yeah. in and assist and run the safe houses. And you basically set up a mission support site infrastructure. And I had no fucking clue how to do any of that because I was a, I was a Marine infantryman that was designed to go charge the battlefield and kill dudes and so this jason Bourne type shit wearing yep. plain clothes growing your beard out dressing like a local driving in a local vehicle living out in town not on a secured compound we were living in a house out in town and responsible for our own security for a while and setting up all of these logistically running around with a bag with three hundred and twenty thousand dollars in it and a suppressed pistol was my life and growing my beard out and i'd never done anything like that and so i got a hard fast education in my really technical aspect of military special operations and intelligence collection. Got a 
great in, education in the field on it. And then worked with amazing guys. The cream of the crop guys at the time were like getting out and coming and contracting. And so we had several guys from special missions. Monetary, from a monetary point of view, the money would be much better than being in the military. Oh yeah, money was, yeah, money was absolutely, it was amazing. And it was the most money I ever made. It was at that particular time in my life. So yeah, it was, it was great. Money was awesome. Working with the guys was awesome. We could use whatever gear and equipment we wanted. We can conduct missions and do all of our mission planning how we wanted. Like we, we really weren't, uh, we really weren't reporting to anybody. Like we had a contract with a scope of work that was assigned to us by the Department of Defense. We all had letters of authorization. We all had arming agreements, and we all had a U.S. Department of Defense IDs, which is yeah. something that people like if they don't understand those things. And I just want to be clear about this because there's, there's been times for, where people that don't know any better will accuse Blackwater of being this mercenary organization. And to me, the definition of a mercenary is somebody that will take money from anybody. If I'm a mercenary, mm-hmm. I'll go work for the Russians. I'll mm-hmm. go work for Al Qaeda. I'll yeah. go work for Hamas. I'll go work for whoever's going to fucking pay me to carry mm-hmm. a gun and do whatever they want. That's a mercenary. That's a big difference. Yeah, so we were there. We were all former law enforcement. We were all former law enforcement tactical guys or we were all former combat arms or military special operations personnel. And we were all there executing a specific task for a specific reason and it was all U.S. government sanctioned and U.S. government contracted and we were supporting U.S. government initiatives. So lots of people will be like, oh, you fucking mercenary. That's not how it works. It's not what we were there for. So I ended up Next deployment, I was on the. I was responsible for setting up a training program for the border interdiction effort, training the Afghan border patrol to patrol the Pakistani-Afghan border, and I did that. Dangerous place, that, huh? Yeah, yeah, very dangerous place. That's a drug sort of line too, isn't it? That's where the drugs go from Afghanistan into Pakistan. Yeah, so that was like my. So the next deployment, I ended up doing a close protection detail, a low visibility close protection detail for. Guys that were doing NSA, conducting NSA activities to do, they were basically looking for high-value targets inside Kabul province, looking for guys. And On your own? Yeah, I was just by myself. It was me and my principal, basically, which was the NSA agent that was mm-hmm. responsible for setting up the equipment to locate individuals on their cell phones that we were looking for. And then my next deployment, I was attached to the narcotics interdiction unit, and that's where we were working with CIA, U.S. Army Special Operations Command, the DEA, and then... My job. Yeah, you would have seen some fucking product. Oh yeah. Oh, I've I've walked into compounds where we had pallets and pallet taller than me. Pallets taller than me. Raw IPM. Yeah, raw opium and raw heroin. It was so much of it that we couldn't blow it in place. We didn't have enough explosive man carried explosives with us between a forty man assault element. We didn't. Is that what happened? That you'd have to blow it up. Yeah, we would blow it in place if it was that much. If we, yeah, we'd either burn it or we would blow it in place with the our general purpose charges that we would carry Mm -hmm. on our person. Or we, in this situation, we had two instances where there was so much opium on these pallets that we had to call close air support and drop two thousand pound bombs on it and just level the whole compound. Wow, because a a kilo of heroin in Afghanistan uh, goes for a thousand dollars, which will sell for three hundred thousand in Australia. Yeah. The big markup for people who import it. Let's talk about you leaving the military and what happened after that, because that's interesting for me from a point of view. Like, when did it come to an end? Yeah, so I wrapped up my last deployment in 2010, and I was, like, working with a JSOC task force. And once again, super kinetic deployment. Is this freelance? Let's, we won't use, we'll talk freelance. Is that, yeah. is that the appropriate word? Yes, I was freelancing, but I was a so I was contracted by Joint Special Operations Command to be a 
a uh, operational area advisor because they were working in an area that I had lots of experience in and knew mm-hmm. the ground and had already conducted several operations there and they were new in, in the neighborhood. So they brought me in as an operational area advisor and then as a mobile training team to do mobile training team stuff and then ended up going back and then did a brief amount of time with them and then ended up doing a and then ended up doing a wrapping up another deployment with Blackwater. And that was my last go around where we just When did you make the decision? I've oh, had enough. On our last mission, we got into a pretty little nasty gunfight, and I was like, on, I was on a helicopter, and I just decided, like, I've had enough. It was nine deployments deep, and I was just, I had a situation where bullets just, I should have been dead. I've mm-hmm. had several situations where I should have been dead, and I just realized at that point, we were riding back to the base, and I just was on a helicopter, and I was just like, I'm, this is it, I'm done, I'm finished. I've had, if I keep going, and I had friends that did it, I had friends, unfortunately, that got killed because they just, wouldn't stop. They did mm. 14, 16, 18. I still have friends that are still working, and some of them are 26 to 30 deployments deep. And that's trauma that keeps them in it. Because at the end of that, you're in that. And there's a few things you're going to have to deal with when it comes yeah. over. And often people just keep going to avoid dealing with that trauma. Yeah, that's it. That's part of it. I think it's definitely you, you are avoiding dealing with the aftermath, but you're also dealing with when you live, it's probably akin to being a professional athlete. Mm. And you don't want it to be over. Yeah, you don't want it to be over. You, it's, an, it's a loss of your, it's a massive loss of your identity, which yeah. is what fucked me up for a really long time. I didn't, I'm like, who am I? I've been fighting wars for 13 years. Who am I? What am I interested in now? I remember I had What's all these purpose. Yeah, I had all these passions when I was a kid. I loved skateboarding. I loved snowboarding. I loved rock climbing. I loved being outside. I loved punk rock music. I loved going to concerts. Mm-hmm. I loved all of that stuff. And then I, I remember just having a complete loss and like identity and a complete loss and not enjoying anything that I used to love to do. Yeah, it was this really heavy weight to carry for a really long time and had some of my guys get killed and had to deal with carrying the guilt from that. And it just manifested, like I said, into anger. And I went through losing my identity and then dealing with massive depression and anger for a really long time. And then I had, and then on top of that, I had my friends killing themselves. All in all, I've lost 48 of my of my friends and guys that I worked with. Did you get much support from the military once it was all over? Or? Yes and no. Yeah. That make you angry? Yeah, it certainly does. I think we definitely could do a way better job mm. uh, taking care of our veterans. I think that's worldwide. I think here in Australia, you, how they treat them too. I think. Yeah, I was really. I, I was. I was telling. I was talking to Kate about this because I went and signed up for the swimming pool, and I was like, "Hey, do you guys have a veteran discount?" Mm. And they were like, "No." And I was like, I go, well, what's this concession thing that you guys do? And they're like, oh, that's for... Unemployed. Yeah, she started going down the list of... So I'm like, okay, so you offer, you'll offer a discount for people that uh, don't have jobs, but you won't offer a discount to guys that like served your country. And so, yeah, it's an issue. I wanted to ask you this. Do you think that Australia has like a high level of patriotism? Or do you think they struggle with an with their identity with their national identity? I think they struggle with their national identity. I think we do. I think there's a lot of confusion in this country. Yeah. Whether what's good and what's bad. I think a lot of people disagree with war over here. They do. I think that they don't. As you won't see too people don't stand up like when the Americans play the national mm-hmm. anthem and people stand up with their hand on their heart. Yeah. You don't see much of that here. Yeah. Yeah, I was just—I wanted to see what your position on it was because I noticed it. Mm. I've noticed that there's not a high level of patriotism here in Australia. I love this country. Yeah. I absolutely love I, this I country. Agree. I agree. I think most of my viewers yeah. will agree with you. But you know what it is too? We've had such dodgy governments. We just mm-hmm. come out of the most corrupt government this country's ever seen. 
we had a, we had a, an LMP party that celebrated pedophiles and stuff like that. It was basically the most dodgiest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, we have some wacko shit like that going on in the U.S. right now, too. We're no better when it comes to having good government officials representing the people and doing doing their best to take care of the people. I follow American po- politics. I really like RFK. Yeah. I'm really I'm a big fan of Kennedy. The yeah. Kennedy coming through, I think he's the man. I don't know. You might think different, but... I liked his... I listened to his podcast and he did a great really... Great podcast. I listened to it twice. Yeah, yeah. Really good podcast where he fell off and lost me was at the last bit where he was talking about how, like, he wants to shut down the CIA and he has more of an isolationist point of view. And here's what I'll say about that is... And I think, <clears throat> realistically, we're like, we're seeing the effects of it and you're seeing the effects of what's going on in Israel right now, but... There's just certain factions out there, terrorist organizations or governments, look at what Putin's doing. You you can't, there's no negotiating with them. Mm. And if you don't maintain a state of readiness and you don't maintain a a proactive and a progressive approach to dealing with potential threats and displaying strength, the fucking bad guys will run over the top of you. Mm. They will run over the top of you. So We hear stories of the CIA importing drugs and doing all these nasty things and stuff like that. And I think, for me, I think, like when you hear them sort of things, you think, that can't be real. Yeah. I never experienced anything like I was subcontracted by that organization and I conducted operations on behalf of that organization Mm. and on the programs that I worked on. And I never saw anything that that Mm. that I thought was shady. Now, have I heard stories about it? Sure. You're talking about an organization that like used to run the MK Ultra program where they would like give people LSD to fucking try and turn them into super soldiers. So I, I don't think that they don't have any culpability mm. in shady. And everyone's got bad elements to yeah. it. Oh, Australian police force. <laughs> That's just a muzzle. Oh, I know. I watched your thing about them tasing some 90-year-old lady and killing her. And I, justifying it. Yeah, fuck And her. the cover-up. Yeah. There's a massive cover-up on it. Let's talk about <clears throat> post, post-military. How do you get on with life now? Tell me, what are you, what's your purpose? Have you found your purpose? Yeah, it took a long time. But what I ended up doing was I transitioned into doing firearms, and weapons and tactics training and training qualified civilians. Gun culture is huge in the U.S. And South Africa is massive, isn't it? Yeah, there's some countries on the planet that still there's several places in Europe and like Finland and some other countries where they're very pro-gun. And it's, it's part of our culture. So we have the training industry is a very lucrative industry mm-hmm. in the U.S. And so I did that for a long period of time where I trained guys that I knew on active duty. And then I trained federal law enforcement. Like I had connections at the DEA because of all the work that I did with them in Afghanistan. And so I trained them quite a few times. And I did that for a number of years. And then I just got tired of being in a hotel, not knowing what city I was in because my schedule was pretty hectic. I was just on the road all the time teaching classes all over the country, and so... You would have grown up as a kid just wanting to be stable, wouldn't you? Like having that stable place to live? Yeah. Yeah, we're still, we're still working on that. <laughs> so the I did that for a block of time, and then I got really into d- designing gear. I really loved to design products around what my old job was and to support the guys with innovative solutions, because the gear that we get issued is shit, mm. largely. And nowadays, the guys get issued really great stuff. But back in the day, when the things first started and... Our budgets were shit, and our experience level with combat was shit, and we didn't know what was good gear and bad gear. We got issued largely a lot of shit gear, and so we were constantly... I was one of those nerds that was constantly modifying my gear all mm. the time. So I eventually gravitated towards that, and I got I got some contracts advising engineering and design teams on how... And I worked with really big companies. I worked with uh, 511 Tactical, maybe... I know there's a rumor that I may be a character in a video game. Okay. 
I worked with him as an advisor. Can't confirm or deny. Yeah, <laughs> can't confirm or deny that. <laughs> but yeah, I may be the uh, character in Ghost Recon Wildlands. And then I I worked with them on a media and advisory thing on that, and then worked on a lot of gear design where I would help R&D equipment, like backpacks or weapon componentry mm. or weapons or whatever, and body armor, stuff like that. And had a, I really gravitated towards that, and I loved it. But I got to the point where... I was going into these meetings and I started getting really bad imposter syndrome because I'm sitting with like engineers, mechanical engineers Mm. that went through years of school and are really brilliant guys and know how to run software programs that I don't know how to run. And then I'm in the room with other designers that went to school for it and are professionally trained in it. And I'd see you as the most important person in that room, lived experience. Can't beat it. Yeah, you can't beat end user input. And it's why a lot of sports companies pull athletes into basically advise on development of product. Mm. Um, and it's a similar situation in the defense space. But I just had really bad imposter syndrome, and yeah. I felt like... Uh, that can That's torment. I get it. Yeah, and so I was like, I needed to do more. So I had my school benefits from the military. So I went to uni and went to design school for three years in San Francisco and learned how to do industrial design. And then that just completely changed the game for me. Learned how to use a laser cutter, learned about materials sourcing, learned about different types of materials, learned about machining, different types of metals, carbon fibers, how to 3D model. How so you're working, the, the basis of yours is making it light and durable, yeah? Yeah. So my, A lot of what you're learning. Yeah, like, so my <clears throat> tenants for what I do in terms of product development for my company, my design tenants are versatility, durability, simplicity, and aesthetic. Is Gotta it look good. Yeah, is it Gotta per- look good when you're in war, mate. Right, nobody likes to buy an ugly piece <laughs> of shit. Does it do more than one thing? Can it withstand abuse? Is it simple and intuitive? Can somebody just pick it up and relatively without much instruction use it? And is it, does it look cool? Does it look cool? Does it look awesome? So those are my tenets of design and what I go by. But yeah, that's what I gravitated into. And then, but there's the, and then there's the post part, like when start things. It's the bit I like to talk about. Is yeah. the po- things start to po- uh, pop up and affect your behaviour and how you feel and how you act. And how did you deal with that? What sort of you talked about the healing? Let's talk a bit about the healing. Yeah, so I was destroying relationships at a pretty good rate and didn't realize. And it was because of my anger coming out in me. Mm. And even to this day, like, Kate's like, you're really direct. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that's part of my culture as an American. We are very direct Mm. and we just tell people how it is. And if you don't Mm. like it, fuck you. And so there's that aspect. But then there's also the just the, I don't know, there's the anger that just boils up to the surface really easy. And was destroying relationships with my family, with my friends, business relationships, romantic relationships. And at one point, I just sat down and I just realized, oh, fuck, you're the... And I don't even know how it came to me. It's hard to say the problem's me. Yeah, I went for this long run and I was sitting... It was a long run that went up to this peak and I was sitting on top of this little peak and overlooking the valley and I sat down and I just was trying to run the anger out of myself. So I think I ran about 20K and I was sitting on top of this mountain and I was like looking down in the valley and it just came to me. And I just... This inner voice was like, you're the fucking problem. Mm. You're the fucking problem. And once I came to that realization, I was like, okay, I'm the fucking problem. I, I was going to talk therapy. And then that was helpful for a while. And then I did get some good skills out of talk therapy. I went to talk therapy for a few years. And then I graduated from uni and then I got into the got into my professional space doing gear design. And, and that's when I was still having these anger issues. And uh, I had a good friend of mine. That's one of my best friends. He's an army ranger, and uh, he's got several deployments too. But he started pursuing the psychedelic medicine path. Massive. I was so, hoping you'd go there because you're talking my jam. Yeah, yeah. So he took me. He was like, "He's hey man, how you doing?" And he's like, "Don't bullshit me." And I was like, "I'm not doing well." And he's like, 
cool, come to my house. And so I went to, I drove up to his house like 14 hours away because I was in Wyoming at the time. He's in Washington. So I drove up to Seattle and he, I got to his house and I walked in and I remember I got there and he had the scene set. There was like cool art on the walls. He had a little laser thing that was like lighting up the room and then he had can a couple candles lit and then he i walked into the kitchen and he had a big stack of mushrooms mm-hmm. <laughs> on the cutting board and he chopped mm-hmm. them up and he's okay cool eat these or put these in. he put them in tea and we made some tea and i did seven grams of mushrooms and that just opened up a lot for me and just immediately was like able to recognize look back and recognize and forgive myself mm-hmm. that was a moment where i was like oh it's not your fault that Jeremy's dead. It's not your fault that Ryan's dead. It's not your fault. All my mates that got killed, it's not your fault. And I remember like having that realization and kind of in that moment, like we, that trip lasted for about all night. And it was, it was a long ride. It was like 12 hour ride. We started at 6 PM and like, I think got done at 6 AM the next morning. And I just, in that thing, <clears throat> was it quiet? Were you, were you talking, was, was he talking to you or anything like that? Or So we started out doing a Joe Dispenza meditation Yeah, yeah. and then we were just, how good to Joe? Oh, he's great. The best. Yeah, Dr. Yeah. Joe Dispenza, for all the listeners, yeah. give it a go. Yeah, yeah, go check him out for sure. Um, he's got some great meditations on YouTube, and he's written a couple of good books. My friend just recommended me Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself, which mm. I'm going to pick up and check out here soon. But yeah, did that, and then he, and then I'd say three or four months later, invited me back, and I did another trip, and I think we did nine grams that time, and just had more, another huge release. And then... I had a block of time where I felt really great. I felt great for probably about six months, six, six, eight months. And then what happened next was I didn't realize what was happening, but I had this, I had a traumatic brain injury from blast exposure from all the explosives and it had fucked up my pituitary gland. So my body wasn't producing testosterone like it should, which was causing me not to sleep. It was causing me to be angry and irritable. It was causing all, it was causing a lot of issues with me, Um, primarily sleep. I started sleeping in 45 minute cycles. And so I had a Navy SEAL buddy that saw me and he was like, you look like shit. My Navy SEAL buddy turned me on to this brain, the brain, brain treatment foundation. Mm. And I went in and got evaluated and they discovered that I had blast exposure trauma on the brain. And then they got me in all of this like therapy. And I was, I did therapy with them for eight weeks and they did Mert therapy on me and a bunch of other stuff. And, um, got me evaluated and got me on a good diet and got me on some good supplements. And then that really helped self, set me straight. Mm, I'm on TRT. I do TRT, testosterone replacement. Yeah. Best, best thing for my depression, best thing ever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I swear by it. Yeah. Yeah. It's massively important, especially as you start to get older. But yeah. So when they tested me at the Brain Treatment Foundation, which is how we found out I have a hormone deficiency, I'm 46 now, but when I went through this, I think I was like 38 and my level was supposed to be, like I was supposed to be in the 800 range, mm. like a normal for my age, it was supposed to be at 800, and I, mine was like 215. Mm. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're fucked up, so let's fix you. So they sent me to a neurologist and a, and a hormone doctor, and they pulled blood panels on me, and then, yeah, they put me on HRT, and that changed the game for me. So I just, like, I had my energy back. Yeah. I had, I felt great, could recover from workouts quickly, was putting muscle back on and keeping it on. So on that, how's life today? So life's good. I, so t- just to... Basically, having what I call a multi-layered like healing process in your life to deal with your trauma is it's necessary. That is. I have this theory, and I talked about it in one of my podcasts, where I said you can't build a house with just a hammer. You can't do the electrical with just a hammer. You can't do the plumbing with just just a hammer. You can't pour the concrete with just with a hammer. Like so, to think that you're going to go to some therapist and sit on a couch and that's gonna, that's going to solve everything, you know. 
If your hormones are fucked up in your body, there's nothing a talk therapist is going to do to help you. Mm -hmm. So be the general contractor of your own healing process and take responsibility for your health and for your mental, for your physical and mental health and your emotional health. And, you know, look at multifaceted ways basis. Brian Bishop, on that note, thank you for being on the sticker. Damn, I'm happy to come back anytime.